Today we're continuing our summer series in the book of Ecclesiastes, which means we're going to read it now together. It's a chapter um, probably made famous in the secular world by the birds way back. Um, It's Ecclesiastes 3, entitled The Time for Everything. It's on page 670 of the Bibles in front of you. So before Jim comes up, we're going we're gonna to read the, the whole chapter together. So, There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on men. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live. That everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. Whatever is has already been, and whatever will be has been before, and God will call the past to count to account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there, and the place of justice, wickedness was there. I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work, because that is his lot. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Good morning, everyone. Christoph has gone off on holiday this morning, and he's given me the task of speaking to you today and next Sunday morning. It's quite a daunting task because, and I say this as somebody who's been a minister for over 50 years, Christoph is one of the outstanding preachers within our denomination today, and it's quite a privilege and challenge to to stand in his shoes. Now, during the summer months, we've been having a series of sermons on the book of Ecclesiastes, and today we are focusing on Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and I hope you keep the Bible open in front of you. 
When our four youngest grandchildren come to visit Ruth and myself, one of the things they love to do is to go out into the back garden and play, What's the Time, Mr. Ruth? I'm sure you know the game. They line up on one side of the lawn. My wife, Ruth, stands with her back to them on the other side, and she acts as the wolf. They call out, what's the time, Mr. Wolf? She says, it's two o'clock, three o'clock, one o'clock. They have to take the appropriate number of steps forward. And then, of course, when she judges they're close enough, she said, it's dinner time, and turns and tries to catch one of them. And there's great hilarity and screaming. And, of course, if somebody's caught, they become the wolf. What's the time, Mr. Wolf? Now, our sermon today is about time. And the opening half of Ecclesiastes 3, on which we are going to focus, is one of the most quoted passages in the Old Testament and uh, has been popularized in song, as we've also heard. It's frequently read on special occasions like weddings, funerals. Why is it read at such times? It's a passage that offers comfort, that expresses confidence that we as Christians have that our lives are in the hands of God and everything that happens, happens at a time God chooses. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. We've just read the whole passage, so I'll not quote it all to you, but what we have in uh, the first half of uh, chapter 3 is um, 14 couplets, each bringing together two opposites, and all under this banner, there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. Now, some of the couplets make sense to us today, and some don't. For instance, there's a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. What's all that about? I was quite surprised and uh, preparing for today to discover that Jewish commentators suggested that this was a sort of veiled reference to marriage. I don't really get it, perhaps... Uh, uh, there's a time to argue and a time to make up, but I hope they didn't throw stones at one another. But uh, quite, uh, some of the sayings are quite tied into those times. What about even a time to love and a time to hate? What's all that about? How do we understand it in the light of Jesus' teaching? Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. So you can see that there are various problems if we look at these verses one word at a time, some of the sayings are very much tied up to, to their culture and time. And what we need to do is really look at these verses as a whole. What we have here is a, a reflection of the various moods and situations in which people in those days found themselves. What they're indicating, these verses, what they're teaching is that in every aspect of human life, every experience has its place in the great tapestry 
of God's plan. What these verses are saying really is we're not at the mercy of cruel fate or fickle circumstance. There's a time for everything, a season for every activity under heaven. There's a plan and purpose in all that happens. There's a time and season for every activity under heaven. That's what the writer's getting at a little later in the chapter, in verse 11. And you may like to look at verse 11 in your, in your Bibles. The writer's talking about God, and he says, He has made everything beautiful in his time. Beautiful in his time. That's how he he sums up this first section, uh, all about time. Now, a word about beautiful. It's not a precise translation of the Hebrew. Many of the things mentioned in those first verses weren't exactly beautiful. The word means beautiful in a different sense, in the sense of fitting together well. Everything fits in place beautifully. That's the sort of meaning of the word. The writer is saying that God has made a plan for our lives such that all the experiences of life, pleasant and unpleasant, good and bad, they all fit together in the end into a perfect pattern that God has planned for us. Now, at the time, we probably don't see this, particularly if we're going through difficulties. We can be, we can be like somebody who's desperately short-sighted, who's trying to view some great tapestry or fresco. We get up close. We see part of the thing. We see the quality of it. But we can't step back far enough to, to see the overall picture. We can never stand back and view it as its creator does, whole and entire from beginning to end. In the end, of course, to believe that everything does fit into that great pattern and plan is a matter of faith, faith to believe that there is for us individually a time for everything, and a time for every season under heaven. That faith, that trust in God's purpose, for me is expressed always in in that beautiful poem, uh, The Weaver. Some of you may know it, the Dutch uh, Holocaust survivor, Corrie ten Boom, used to quote it often when she was reflecting on her very scary, sad, and difficult life under German occupation during the Second World War. My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors. He worketh steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow. And I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle ceases to fly shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why the dark threads are so needful in the weaver's skillful hand. As the threads of gold and silver 
in the pattern he has planned. There's a pattern and a purpose in every circumstance of life, but we can never see the full picture, this side of eternity. This leads me on, really, to the second half of verse 11 that you may like to look at, and to something else that we can never fully grasp in life. The writer talks about God and says, He has also set eternity into the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done. The writer of Ecclesiastes, who who takes a rather pessimistic view of life, yet recognizes something of supreme importance. God has placed in the human heart a hunger, a longing for something beyond what this world can provide. That's how we are made. That's how all of us are made in every culture and century and age. It was centuries later that St. Augustine made the same point. God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. Two things should be said because of this. First of all, God has placed eternity in our hearts and we can never completely fathom what God has done, the writer says. We can never fully uh, get to the bottom of it all, this side of death. As the writer of 1 Corinthians puts it, now we see through a glass darkly. Then we shall see face to face. We're on a journey. We need to keep traveling, seeking to know God in a deeper way, in a clearer way. Now, I don't know where we are in that particular journey, but we don't give up the quest. It's the one who thinks they know everything and who feels superior to others. Who's the one who's given up the quest and who displeases God? We need to keep, keep traveling, keep seeking. God has placed that uh, unrest, if you want to call it that, in our hearts, that desire. And in obedience, we need to keep seeking him. And there's a second thing that must be said. All of us here know people who seem to have no interest in God or in spiritual things. They may be members of your own family, people you work with. To all intents and purposes, they may seem to be thoroughly secular, materialistic, self-centered, self-satisfied, superior individuals, neither concerned about God or anything else. They have what somebody has described as an anorexic attitude to the Almighty. No interest in spiritual things. We've given up on them, I'm sure, some people that we know like that. But we need to remember this. God's Word tells us that he has set eternity in the hearts of all people, even in their hearts. 
There's a seed there that's been planted by God. It's, it's part of his creation of us. And so we don't give up. We don't just write them off. We don't know how the seed is developing, when the time will come when it begins to grow in the hidden depths of any person's heart, or when it may break through the, the hard surface of their lives. God has planted something in the hearts of all of us, and he will nourish it to where he wants it to be. Now, let me pause for a moment. I don't, I don't know how many of you ha have been here during the past couple of Sundays when we looked at Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and chapter 2. It was all pretty heavy stuff, wasn't it? The book, you see, begins with its theme there in 1 verse 1. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That's uh, the title, really, of, of the whole book. And it goes on in chapter 1 and 2. Everything's meaningless. Work is meaningless. Pleasure is meaningless. Wisdom is meaningless. It's all fairly depressing. So what I've uh, tried to do uh, today, really, is to focus on some of the more positive lessons in chapter 3. However, the negative is still there. And in this section, I'm going to finish with the very last verses of the chapter, and you'll see that that negativity is really perhaps returning again. But we want to try to get beyond the negativity to, to see what positives we can bring out of them as Christians. So let's look at verse 18 in your, in your Bible. I also thought, the writer says, I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like animals. Man's fate is like that of animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? So I saw that there's nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work, because that's his lot. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? We're returning to this more negative picture. We're no better than the animals. That's how he evaluates human life. And you know, when I see pictures on television like uh, the terrible pictures of suffering in places like the Yemen, and what human beings are doing to one another, I can feel sympathy with the writer. There's many, many instances that would evidence that we are no better than the animals. 
But in fact, these things are not just far away. And I'll not say his name, but that Lurgan man who was jailed last week for battering to death an 11-week-old puppy with with a claw hammer really disturbed me. Are we any better than the animals? When you hear things like that, such, an impar- such a comparison is an insult to the animals. But fortunately, such things are the exceptional. Are we any different from the animal kingdom? Both come from the dust, he says, and return to the dust. That may be true about our bodies, but human life is more than a pilgrimage from dust to dust. Our lives have a special value. And Ecclesiastes, despite the lot of negativity we find in it, has already told us why that difference is there. God has placed eternity in man's heart. There's a dimension to man's life that's not there in the, human, in the animal kingdom. And of course, those early chapters, those early verses in this chapter remind us that human life is not meaningless. There's a rhythm, a plan, and a purpose to it all. That's, that's, the, per- that's the message of uh, Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 8. And when the author of Ecclesiastes, here in this last section, when he returns to that more depressed sort of form, when he says, who knows if the spirit of man rises upward, and the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. We reply, we know. We know. In the Old Testament, there may be a vagueness about life after death, though not that widespread skepticism that we get in Ecclesiastes. But we know there's a bigger picture and a better picture. We're children of the new covenant. We have a fuller revelation of the will and the ways of God that the writer of the Ecclesiastes and, and the people of, the, uh, of Israel didn't know. The coming of Jesus Christ into the world reveals fully the magnitude of God's love for humankind. The teaching of Jesus Christ reveals the compassion of God even for the most insignificant, even for the most sinful of us. And the death of Jesus Christ, followed by his triumph over death and his resurrection, reveals that death is not the end. We know that's the great message of the gospel. I don't need to remind you of the great promise of Jesus. I've gone to prepare a place for you. And if I come, uh, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. We know there's more than dust that lies ahead. But we've also got to say this. There are many people today for whom life is amazingly difficult and who struggle and struggle just to keep going. There are millions, indeed tens of millions of people today for whom things are unbelievably hard and for whom there seems to be no way of escape or relief. These are people whose 
whose feelings maybe are even accurately described by the despairing words of the writer to Ecclesiastes. And these aren't just people trapped in Syria or Yemen. They aren't just those confined to to refugee camps in Bangladesh or Libya. There are people in our own city, even in our own congregation, whose lives have lost their purpose and their pleasure, and for whom their work has no satisfaction at all. There are people who find no hope and no help. They despair and live lives of quiet desperation. And yet we've got to remember that message. God has placed eternity in their hearts. Each one of their lives has value and purpose, even though they can't find it. And I'd like to suggest to you today, we who follow Christ are God's gardeners, whom he wants to use uh, to plant and cultivate those small seeds of hope that can assure even the most depressed of people that God's love for them and his purpose for their lives is good. So friends, on this holiday Sunday, whether we're thinking about our own situation or the situation of a friend or a colleague, don't give in to the grim fatalism that thinks everything is purposeless, useless. Look at the Look at, the, look at the God whom we worship. The God who in Jesus Christ gives us that fuller, bitter, bigger picture. Let us realize that there is a time for everything. There are ups and downs in our lives and everybody else's lives. But as we trust ourselves into the hands of God, he can transform our lives and use even the dark times to lead us to a fuller, better life. God will make everything beautiful in his time. That's his promise for you and for all those whom we love. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you that in all the changing circumstances of our lives, You are there, working out your purposes for our good. We thank you that you're a God we can depend upon, always faithful, always true, always loving, always kind. We thank you that day by day, week by week, year by year, You are at work within our lives. Loving God, we thank you that through your Holy Spirit you're building up your kingdom and fulfilling your eternal purposes in our world. We thank you that you do not work alone, but have invited us to play our part in fulfilling your plans. So, Lord, help each one of us 
to be people whose lives clearly witness to your love, and help us to live in a way that is consistent with what we believe. Help us to make the most of every opportunity you've given us, and to use our gifts, and to grasp our opportunities, and to offer you every aspect of our lives. So, Lord, as we go from here, help us to know that whatever we go out the door to face today, you are there, and you in your goodness and mercy can use all things for your glory and for the upbuilding of our lives. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been praying. We're going to finish, really, with with a, a traditional hymn that's uh, really a prayer, a prayer to God telling him that we are committing ourselves and our times into his hands. It's 516 in the book, My Times Are in Your Hand. Let's praise God.